order in the court. It's time for Understanding the Law Radio. Well, hi, and thanks for joining me for another episode of Understanding the Law Radio. I'm your host, Peter Lamont, and trying to recover from all the candy that I consumed on Halloween. Hope you guys had a great Halloween. Today, let's talk about something a little more savory, just to get rid of the sweets. We're going to talk about sandwiches. Why Why would I talk about sandwiches? Well, because tomorrow, November, what is it, the 3rd, November 3rd, tomorrow, it's the National Sandwich Day. There's a day for everything. I mean, you can literally look online and find a day for everything. But tomorrow is National Sandwich Day. And there's no, no food out there that has received so much attention, arguably, as the sandwich, both from a legal perspective and from the origination of where sandwich came from. So we're going to talk about that today. We're going to, we're going to do all things sandwiches today. Now, I happen to like a good sandwich, but surprisingly, the way I like to eat, I don't like stuff on my sandwich. Like if you gave me a, a BLT, I wouldn't eat it. If you give me a chicken parm sandwich, that's where I'm, I'm, I'm at. That chicken parm, meatball parm, ooh, maybe a good cheesesteak, or maybe just like a plain roast beef, like a well-done roast beef, salt and pepper, plain. I'm a plain kind of guy. So like when you get those big foot-long Subway Italian heroes, like you know, I used to have them at office parties when I used to work in, in the city. They'd have these office parties at some of the larger firms that I would work at, and, and you know they'd they'd get six or ten or whatever of these gigantic sub sandwiches, and I'd never eat them. They always looked really good, and I liked the the you know idea of it, but never ate them. Just a plain old guy. Well, let's let's talk about sandwich. Now, I'd love to take a poll. Where do you think the name sandwich came from? Where you know who created it? Who is it named after? Why is it called the sandwich? What's going on here? And I think that the vast majority of people will attribute the creation of the sandwich to none other than the Earl of Sandwich. Now, by the way, if you have never eaten at the Earl of Sandwich, it's a chain restaurant. They have a lot of them down in Florida. There's one in particular at Disney Springs itself. You are missing out. Now, people might argue with me and say, they don't like it as much as Jersey Mike's or some of these other chains. But for me, the Earl of Sandwich is the pinnacle. They've got this Thanksgiving sandwich. So it's like turkey and stuffing and gravy and all kinds of other stuff on the sandwich. Now, I just got through telling you that I don't like stuff on my sandwich, but I do like Thanksgiving. And so a Thanksgiving sandwich is right up my alley. So if you've never heard of the Earl of Sandwich, the sandwich shop, you should check it out. But Getting back to the Earl of Sandwich himself, the fourth Earl of Sandwich is who we believe or we attribute the creation of the name Sandwich. His name was John Montague, the fourth Earl of Sandwich. However, however, if you look at the history of the creation of the sandwiches, what you find is that he is not the first one to have a sandwich. In fact, there are some um, older texts that attribute it to this Jewish rabbi and scholar, Hillel the Elder, who was born in Babylon and lived in Jerusalem during the first century. 
And uh, Jewish texts have him eating a Passover meal, and he made sandwiches using lamb, herbs, and unleavened matzah bread. So maybe he's the first one to have a sandwich, to create a sandwich. I don't know. But then if you go over into the Mediterranean region and the Middle East region, they know how to make sandwiches too. Because if you go back into... um, you know, early times, you've got the Ottoman Empire and, and the Turkish people who were rolling bread and filling it with ingredients and, and, you know, meat. So that's part of Turkish culture. So are the Turks the ones who invented the sandwich? I don't know. But at some point, the Earl of Sandwich has a sandwich and reporters and, and authors and people who are um, writing articles, for example, there's one called, uh, you know, a, a satirical book called The Tour to London. Um, there's another one called New Observations on, on England and its Inhabitants. And they use the word sandwich for, I would imagine, the first time. And from there, many people just assumed that the word sandwich was created by the Earl of Sandwich, but Historically speaking, there is no truth to that, but that's what we all believe and that's what we all say. So I just thought I'd give you a little bit of history, which we normally don't do on this on this channel, or on this show, um, about the creation of, of sandwich. But now I want to jump into the lawsuits involving sandwiches. You know, it's kind of, you know, crazy to, to look. I was doing some research and the amount of, of sandwich lawsuits... It's just astronomical. One that is more recent than others, and it actually just was concluded the other day before Halloween, the fake tuna lawsuit against Subway. Have you heard about this? So it's a class action that was filed back in 2020 by uh, class members who allege that the, the tuna that is on Subway sandwiches in fact, contains no tuna. So they have it tested, they have it analyzed, they bring it to a lab because, you know. All right, hold hold on. Let me let me just digress here for a second about class action lawsuits. And I just if you've ever thought to yourself, this would make a good class action, let, let me let me tell you something. Class actions only benefit one group of people, and that is the lawyers. Because if you're a class member in a class action, you do not get much. Now, I've, I've seen, I've been involved as a defendant representing clients in class action litigation. I know how it works. And the only one that benefits is the lawyers because they're getting their fees out of the settlement and they're making sure that that's the first thing that is dealt with. But the actual monetary award to the the class members is is minimal have you ever received in the mail a notice of class action settlement you have no idea what what this is but like if you subscribe to some streaming platform during this period to this period you're entitled to uh, a free month or you're entitled to download a free movie so what, what's the benefit there how are you getting rich off of downloading a free movie you're not but you know who is the lawyers who brought the class action so, swing back around to the tuna story. 
the plaintiffs, the individual plaintiffs who are claiming there's no tuna on these sandwiches, they're not going around and going to labs and having people test to see if there's actually tuna. No, they go to a lawyer and they say, you know, I don't think there's any tuna in here. The lawyer says, light bulb, this is amazing. There's no tuna. Let's go send it to a lab. They bring it to a lab. Lab says, there's no tuna in here. And no tuna comes back. Lawyer says, gold mine. Okay, we're going to file a class action. We're going to use you as the, the class representative. And we are going to take Subway for all it's worth. And we're going to make a lot of money from this lawsuit. That's what goes through the minds. And I'm not being cynical. This is just true. And I think if you ask most lawyers, maybe not the ones that do the class action work on the plaintiff's end, but if you ask most lawyers, they're going to tell you the same thing. The class action lawsuits benefit the lawyers, not the class members. Sure, you can argue it's about social justice and by bringing this class action, you're trying to bring change to the world and, and stop Subway from faking tuna in their sandwiches and it's an injustice, but come, come on, come on. We all know what's going on here. We all know what it really is. It's about money. All right, I digress, right? It just, it just gets me going because so many times I'll hear people say, this is a good class action and you know, they don't understand what, what, what goes into and, and what goes on with a class action. So anyway, so the plaintiff's attorneys have this tuna tested and the lab reports come back and they say there's no tuna in here. And so they file the action. And this, this thing goes on, you know, for a few years up until just the other day when a court ruled that the case should be dismissed with prejudice, meaning it can't be refiled. And, um, you know, that essentially the claims about the fake tuna are false. Now, how did Subway prove that there is tuna in their sandwich? I want to tell you how they did it. And it's not going to make you feel any better about eating tuna from Subway. But that's not the point. They say that their tuna is so highly processed that it actually denatures the, um, the, 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 the tuna and pulls out and removes any DNA strains that would be um, indicative of tuna and makes it almost unidentifiable. Now, they ran, in the course of uh, this lawsuit, they ran their own tests, and they were able to prove that, yeah, there is trace identifiable components saying that this food product is in fact tuna and that it's just so highly processed that you can't identify the DNA strain. So they were victorious in this lawsuit and, and they shut down this tuna thing, which so many people I think thought was, was a waste of time to begin with, that those are the people that are probably aware of how these class action things work and, and who they actually benefit. But Putting that aside for a second, if I just put myself in the consumer end of this, you know, doesn't it just make you wonder? Now, look, by, I am by no means a health nut at all, right? Like if you said to me, do you want some, some peanuts? I'd say yes, the ones that are in the Reese's peanut butter cups. But when you hear a story like this and you think about how heavily processed 
foods that we eat are where they can actually strip the food of its DNA and you can't really identify it as what that food actually is, it does make me worry a little bit. You know, like, look, I've seen those documentaries. It was that Morgan Spurlock one, uh, Supersize Me, the one where the guy eats McDonald's every day for like 30 days of his life. And, and he goes in and medical tests show, like, look at how unhealthy you are now compared to when you first started the McDonald's diet. And there's tons of people that say, yeah, but that's that's almost a setup because, you know, nobody eats McDonald's breakfast, lunch and dinner and then has shakes and stuff. And so the results of that are skewed. But still, I mean, there, there are health changes that are attributed to fast food. And again, I'm not preaching because I need to get myself under control. I'm certainly not the one saying, hey, let's have some sprouts and beans. I'm the first one getting the double cheeseburger at Wendy's. So, you know, I'm not preaching, but I am like thinking about this. And when you hear like, you know, if you really are interested in this tuna story, Look at some of the documents, the legal documents, the motions that are attributed to the case. Like, look at the motions that were filed during the, cor- the course of the case because there's arguments within the motion concerning the test results. And it, it kind of is un- just a little unnerving to think that you can process a-, a food. Like, when you pull that tuna out of the river, I don't know if tuna are in the river. I'm, I'm not a fisherman. Are they in the ocean? Maybe they're in the ocean. Wherever you get the tuna from, whatever body of water, the tuna is 100% tuna. Right? Could you argue against that? When you pull the tuna out of the water, what do you have? 100% tuna. Could you imagine processing it in a plant to the point where the tuna is no longer a tuna? Right? That's mind-blowing. Mind-blowing. So while I used to, when I was in shape years ago, and I used to be an athlete, I was eating tuna and, and things of that nature, but they were real, real tuna, right? Not, not Subway sandwiches. But if I, in fact, like tuna sandwiches, I would probably not eat a Subway tuna sandwich. Or at the very least, I'd think twice about what I was eating. So, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that while we're talking about these lawsuits, maybe... This will encourage me to diet a little bit harder because I just got to think to myself, look at all these foods that are processed. Maybe I'll have a change of heart and I'll just eat less. That, that's, that's my strategy. That's what I'm going to do. I am going to read up on the scientific data concerning all of these claims because this is not the only case, the tuna case, at all. There's tons of them out there. In fact, this isn't even the first lawsuit that Subway had to deal with. How many of you remember the lawsuit with Subway over the footlong sandwiches? You remember that one? That was a couple years back. Plaintiffs alleged that the sandwiches are advertised as footlong sandwiches. And in fact, they're not footlong sandwiches. They're less. They're slightly less. And because of that, they file a lawsuit alleging all kinds of consumer-related claims and fraud and all sorts of things. So Subway is no stranger to this. You know, and, and those arguments in that case were things like, yeah, it might not actually measure a foot because there's bread shrinkage. And then that leads to that whole discussion about Subway bread not being actual bread. Have you 
you're, you heard about that, right? Where they say that the actual uh, makeup of the bread is more like a cake because there's elements of, of bread that, that or ingredients that are not in the bread. Right? I mean, it kind of making me think twice here about Subway. And I like a good Subway meatball sandwich, but now I'm thinking twice as I'm telling you about these things. So long story short here is Subway, no stranger to litigation. Um, they've won. They've, they've successfully defended these lawsuits. Um, and, you know, they're, they're interesting, but also scary at the same time. Now, the foot-long sandwich thing leads me into another series of lawsuits involving food and they typically or or they are generally revolving around advertising law so for example right the claims about the foot long sandwich it wasn't that the the you know there was a problem with the bread or whatnot it's that they were being advertised as foot longs and people say they were paying for foot longs and they weren't getting foot longs all right well you you know the the commercial arby's we have the meats, right? I mean, who doesn't know that commercial? Well, just a few months ago, Arby's was sued over not having the meats. So another class action, this one was filed in New York. And they were alleging that Arby's was engaging in unfair and deceptive trade practices by using misleading photographs of sandwiches in its advertising. And they were talking about roast beef and brisket sandwiches and all these other things showing these thick inches, thick thick stacks of meat. And that, in fact, when you get the product, there's nowhere near as much meat as depicted in the images on TV. The complaint filed contends that Arby's used uniform photographs for its advertisements across various platforms, including its in-store menu boards and websites, not to mention the food delivery services like uh, DoorDash and, and Grubhub. So they further allege that these deceptive advertising practices caused consumers to believe that they were receiving larger portions of food than they actually did. Now, that's probably not a bad thing for me. I go in, I think I'm getting this big, thick roast beef sandwich, and they give me a little bit less, probably beneficial for me. But I get the idea of it. Um, but it is just, for me, it highlights this sort of idea of chasing money under the guise of chasing justice. So I, I don't know. I mean, I, I could get into a whole philosophical debate about whether I think these claims are valid or worth bringing. But again, it goes back to the, the beneficiary of class action lawsuits. And I just told you before, who benefits from class action lawsuits? Not the Arby's consumer. What is, let, let's just say hypothetically that this lawsuit were to, were to hit. This is a newly filed lawsuit. So we have a long time to let this thing ruminate. But let's just say hypothetically that the plaintiffs won. All right. Now, let's say that the fees to the attorneys are a million dollars because it takes that long and that amount of time and they, they bill at high rates. What do you think that the class members, which becomes what? It becomes everybody that's ever purchased a, an, a, an Arby's roast beef sandwich or 
every consumer of Arby's ever. Do you know how, how huge a pool of people that is? So what does Mr. Plaintiff think he or she is going to get by suing Arby's? You know what he's going to get? A coupon for a free Arby's sandwich. They're, they're not going to get what you would think that they would get, which is fat stacks of cash, just the same way they didn't get the fat stacks of meat. So the class action lawsuit really only serves to benefit the attorneys. And again, I'll go back to that whole issue on the social justice argument and then what's fair and not fair. But, you know, I, I think you got to read through the lines a little bit and see what's going on here. So oftentimes... Well, let me go into this other story. Then I'm going to tell you um, a, a story about a class action that I, I saw develop um, from like inception to filing and give you a little bit of background on that because that might highlight some of what I'm saying in a, in a different light. But Arby's isn't the only one with false advertising claims. Burger King had lawsuits filed against it too for the same thing, showing the juicy whopper. And, and the argument is that you're calling it the Whopper and you're showing me these enlarged images of this sandwich on television. And I think that when I go in and I order the Whopper that I am going to get that giant king-sized Whopper and in fact, I don't. You know, and it's, it's these similar claims that we see all across the board in fast food chains. Now, I, I think, you know, it... it, it it's just, it's, it's such a, a, a tough argument. I'm going to take a position on this, right? Maybe it's not the, the most popular position, but I understand if you end up getting a rodent in your food and you sue the company. I get that. I totally get that. But if your sandwich is slightly smaller than what they said it is, is it really worth your time to go file a class action and make some lawyers rich? I'm going to say no. I'm going to say no at all. Now, I want to tell you the story that I was going to um, mention a few moments ago about how I saw this class action develop from inception through filing. So I had been working with a, with a firm years ago. This is like 2008 or 2009 on uh, a separate case, but they had a department in their law firm that was building out class actions. Now, why do I use that terminology, building out? Because what they were doing was actively seeking claims so this one particular firm had this idea because, let me, let, me, let me give it to you this way. Do you remember the Segways? You know what Segway is, right? The company that makes those rideable um, hoverboards and, and things of that nature. Well, there was this, this one lawyer who had, through class action work, had a so much money that he didn't know what to do with. So he bought himself a Segway. You know, it's one of those that you used to be able to ride over at Epcot where you could, you'd stand on it and it would have the handles and you'd, you'd drive around. So he buys himself a Segway and falls off and comes up with the idea that this could be a class action because this is unsafe. It's inherently unsafe and people can be injured. And so, you know, let's, let's start a class action. But he, as the lawyer, can't be the class representative because how would he make any money if he was the class representative, right? If he was really concerned about social justice and, and consumer fraud, he would have said, hey, let me go get a class action lawyer and I will be the plaintiff. But no, no, he doesn't want to be 
the, the class member. He wants to be the lawyer because that's how he makes money. So I saw this thing develop. They start putting out feelers. And this was, you know, social media was there, but it wasn't as prolific as it is now. But early on, they started putting out feelers on, on websites like MySpace and things of that nature, asking if anybody has ever been injured on a Segway. Then they bought a domain and, and they hunted for a plaintiff who was injured while riding a Segway. And I, I saw this firm also do it with other consumer products, things that were technical violations, things that were, you know, minimally wrong, but still wrong in a sense, kind of like the Subway sandwich. And they'd go out and they'd find these people and they would build the claims and build these class actions around the people that they found. So it was sort of like an orchestrated production of, hey, I have an idea. This doesn't look right. Let's see if we can find a plaintiff that might have had these same things. And then they build it out. And then they, the lawyers, make a lot of money from it. So, you know, I, I think that um, it's something to be aware of. It's something that, that you need to at least think about the next time you hear of a class action lawsuit. Well, I want to read you this this last thing. Um, oh, and by the way, the Burger King lawsuit that we were talking about, that was dismissed. I want to talk about this um, post I saw. So here's the post. I saw it the other day. My girlfriend and I ordered Subway yesterday, and it wasn't until halfway through her sandwich that she saw the other half had moldy bread, and both of us are now ill. Can I file a lawsuit? So, okay, valid question. Somebody posts that online. And then I read this answer. If you and your girlfriend become ill after eating moldy bread from Subway, you may have a legal case for food poisoning or breach of warranty. However, the specific circumstances of the law in your jurisdiction will determine whether you have a valid claim and the best course of action to take. It's important to first seek medical attention if you're experiencing symptoms of food poisoning, such as nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, and fever. You should also keep any remaining food and packaging as well as receipts and other documents. Blah, 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 blah. And then it, it is a solicitation for a lawyer who wants to sue all these fast food chains. So, I don't know. You know, they're out there and they are trolling the message boards and they're looking for these things. So, when, when you think about consumer class actions over sandwiches when you think about lawyers seeking uh cases to 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 sue on for um you know essentially product liability claims for food i don't know before you you jump into it and you start thinking that this is a good idea and and the next time you go to mcdonald's and you get a few fewer fries that you should go to a lawyer just think about who you're going to be making rich it's not you. You're not going to get anywhere. You're not going to get any justice. And, you know, you're going to make lawyers rich. Now, that doesn't mean to say, just clarify, that there's no such thing as a good class action. Of course there is. There are real legitimate class action lawsuits, things that really need to be brought, things that really have um, a, an inherent value in them. But in my opinion, 
a sandwich that's slightly shorter than a foot long, I don't know that that's an actionable claim. So let's keep that in mind. And as you enjoy your sandwich on National Sandwich Day, think twice perhaps about where you're getting it from. Be careful if you're ordering tuna sandwiches. Maybe think twice about that. I certainly would think twice about that after reading what I read and now knowing what I know. But, you know, it, it is what it is. That's just how, uh, how, how we live. You know, we're a fast food culture. Everything has to be, you know, instantaneous. We need people to door dash stuff to us. We, we, you know, it just the nature of where we are. And I think I see it so much more over on the East Coast where we are as opposed to maybe the Midwest where people, you know, I've traveled out there and it's just a slower pace and people appreciate a nice breakfast and sit down and talk and not, you know, hey, can I get an egg related product on some bread substance and, and, and how fast can I eat it? So I don't know. I'm sure the Earl of Sandwich appreciated his sandwich a lot more than we appreciate ours today. But anyway, Hope you enjoyed this podcast. I'm glad to uh, be back on a regular schedule, and, and hopefully you're you're happy about that too. Um, and uh, enjoy National Sandwich Day. That's going to do it for this episode. I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Understanding the Law Radio. If you haven't done so already, make sure that you subscribe to the podcast. We're available anywhere that you listen to your podcasts, including Amazon, Apple Music, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and many more. Also, don't forget to check us out online on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks again. See you next time.